Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. As the governor vetoes legislation that would curb executive powers, the House continues to struggle with major budgets and tensions between the House and Senate are becoming more public. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News join me to talk about the latest in education budgets and more. But first, let's get you caught up on the week. On Friday, Governor Brad Little announced he has vetoed legislation concerning executive powers with support from every living former governor of Idaho. House Bill 135 and Senate Bill 1136 are not about protecting your rights or improving the state's emergency response. The bills handcuff the state's ability to take timely and necessary actions to help Idahoans in future emergencies. The list of potential devastating disasters are simply unknown. Future Idaho governors absolutely must be able to respond quickly and protect lives and livelihoods. The bills not only limit the state, but cities and counties as well. The Idaho Constitution wisely prohibits the legislature from performing executive duties. Declaring and responding to emergencies are core executive functions defined by the Idaho Constitution and the U.S. Constitution, and rightly so. The executive branch has resources and can tap subject matter experts in emergency response to quickly and effectively deploy resources in fast-moving situations. The bills severely interrupt and slow down the emergency response because it becomes subject to 105 different opinions, adding more red tape and government bureaucracy, and potentially impacting lives and livelihoods. For these reasons, I will be vetoing House Bill 135 and Senate Bill 1136. Numerous stakeholders felt ignored. The National Guard, the cities, the counties, FEMA, state emergency managers, and business. This is just plain irresponsible. Let's be honest. These bills are an emotional knee-jerk reaction because of anger about the pandemic and some of my decisions during a very uncertain time last year. But I still believe when faced with difficult decisions, given the information I had at the time, I acted on balance during the pandemic response and the strength of our economy today proves it. Now we know that Idaho will face other disasters down the road, it's a part of life. And we all pray that the damage that's done to our property, to our people, to our families, will be minimal. However, the Idaho Constitution gives the authority to the governor to swiftly respond during a crisis to protect lives, jobs, and the economy. That's the proper role of the executive, and that's why the separation of duties is so clearly established in our state's founding documents. 
but in the middle of a crisis, days and even hours can mean the difference between lives and death. An emergency is no time to slow things down. So I applaud Governor Little for vetoing these bad bills. He and every future governor must have the authority and the tools that they need to respond quickly, save lives, and protect livelihoods during a crisis. It's not unusual during disasters that the governor is at the scene of the incident with the incident commanders. It was not unusual to have incident commanders leadership turn and say, Governor, we need a decision. And they need a decision immediately. That is not the time that a governor should say, I'll get back to you, I must check with the legislature. Governor, thank you for the action you're taking today. It is the correct action. Those pieces of legislation would have limited the powers of Idaho's governors in extreme emergencies, including limiting the amount of time a governor could extend an emergency without the legislature's sign-off. We'll have much more with the pundits later in the show. Meanwhile, the House and Senate continue to have different ideas about an adjournment timeline. On Tuesday, the House voted down the $1.1 billion K-12 public school teacher pay budget on a tie vote, citing concerns that teacher training may include conversations about social justice and racial equity. That appropriation now goes back to the Joint Budget Committee. This is the third major budget the House has killed since coming back from its COVID recess. On Wednesday, the Senate recessed again until next week, and Senate Republican leadership released a press release slamming their House counterparts for, quote, struggling to pass appropriation bills, including Medicaid and those critical to funding Idaho's K-12 schools and the education of Idaho's children, unquote. Before recessing, the Senate passed a bill that would require all school district communications to parents about vaccinations to include references to existing vaccine exemptions in Idaho law. So what this particular piece of legislation does, it doesn't change the requirements and it doesn't change the exemptions. What it does, it says, in the communication that the schools have with parents is to make sure that it's clear, not only the requirement, but the availability of exemptions. I wonder the effects of this. What are the long-term effects? Um, I believe that we need to encourage people to do proper medical procedures. And I think there's some unfortunate language in the code. It says that school children are required to be vaccinated. And then this works great for lawyers, but it doesn't work so well for other people. There's an exception, and the exception is a very broad exception. And it really caused me when I got to the end of the sentence and the end of the section to say, why is the word required in here? The fact that we are still discussing this issue and that there is still disparity around our state about just what our state policy is in, in informing our parents about um, our policy on vaccination means that we need to provide some more clear, clarity. That bill passed 30 to 5 and now heads to the governor's desk. Also Wednesday, the House debated a bill that would ban local government entities, including cities, health districts, and school districts, from implementing mask mandates with concerns about constitutionality and government overreach coming up from both sides of the debate. If it's unconstitutional, we don't need a bill. 
on the topic of the Constitution, there remains a constitutional concern that we are overstepping what, what may be permitted in a courtroom. I would direct the body's attention to Article 2, Section 1 of the Idaho Constitution, which reads, the powers of the government of this state are divided into three distinct departments, the legislative, executive, and judicial. This does include courts, perhaps overstepping the constitutional separation of powers. Every man, at the time it was a man, but we understand every person, has a right to a property in and of his own person. And no one has a right to that but himself. And I think that's where these masks have seemed to so many Idahoans to be an oppression is because it's been forced on them, on their person, on the one thing in this world that we are guaranteed to own. That bill passed 47 to 22 and now heads to the Senate. And on Thursday, the House debated a constitutional ban on the future legalization of controlled substances in Idaho without two-thirds approval from the legislature. Proponents say it would support Idaho being a sober, drug-free state, while opponents said the bill could affect the future legalization of medical marijuana, among other potential issues. Neighboring states have demonstrated that legislation of, control, of controlled substances undermines the first concern of all good government. This proposed constitutional amendment preserves existing Idaho laws that protect our children, our families, and our communities from the devastating effects of the drug culture. The people of Idaho overwhelmingly would like medical marijuana. They, it's, it's off the scales. Nationally, they did a poll recently that was over 90% nationwide. Idaho is the last state to just hold out to not give people medicine. You'd get 70 green lights if, if we would have left a carve out for medical marijuana in this bill. Let's listen to the people. I was asked to possibly run a bill to remove hemp from Schedule 1 because a lot of people in here have constituents who use CBD oil with that very low threshold of 0.3% THC or less. Um, I know for the past three years I've tried to run legislation which would allow citizens in this state to use it without the fear of a felony. As long as it remains on Schedule 1, you can t still be charged with a felony because of trace, just a speck of THC on it is enough to throw you in jail. Ultimately, that legislation failed to reach the required two-thirds threshold and died on the floor. You can watch all of those debates and more on the Idaho Reports YouTube channel. You'll find that link at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. And while you're there, hit subscribe. You'll also find the full announcement from Governor Little on his vetoes of those two bills. Joining us today to talk about those vetoes are Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News. Betsy, Kevin, we're talking about this on Friday afternoon, right after we've watched Governor Little's announcement. I have never seen all of Idaho's living governors join a current governor in a, a, a veto ceremony like that. Betsy, I wanted to get your knee-jerk reaction. Well, first I would say never say never, because without checking, perhaps it did happen before. But boy, was that a strong message. Um, I think I've that- I've never the, seen it, but <laughs> absolutely you're right. 
I, I think that what Governor Little made clear was that despite all the changes that those two bills went through during the legislative session, and from the legislature's perspective, they have come a long way in moderating those bills and changing what they did and allowing for this and that, they did not reach the mark. Some of the things the governor mentioned, such as his ability to call out the National Guard in an emergency, the ability of Idahoans to receive federal emergency assistance, the legislators thought they had written their bills in a way to allow for that, and clearly the governor and his office does not think they did. And if they they didn't, that is a problem. And what this means is this legislative session is nowhere near over. Well, I think what the message underscores, Melissa, is two things. I mean, the fact that Governor Little got statements from all of the other living governors really underscores that this is a, a battle between the authority of the legislative branch versus the executive branch. It also underscores the fact that then Governor Little realizes that he needs to flip a few votes in the legislature. Both of these bills passed with veto-proof majority. So if those votes hold, uh, these vetoes would be overridden. And we and, have and we know from, that, oh, go ahead, Betsy. Well, we have heard from legislators earlier in the session that they did plan to override if the governor were to veto these bills. I don't know if perhaps the strength of the governor's position today and, and this, this extremely strong statement about how far the bills fall short in meeting the constitutional mark that he is setting will, might, may or may not cause them to rethink. We could well still see override votes in both the House and the Senate. And the question is, will they meet the two-thirds mark? And we've seen bills passed before that would have cleared that veto-proof majority, but people do change their minds because they don't want to go after their governor or against their governor in such a public way. If this does pass the two-thirds threshold of a veto override in both houses, does that set up the executive and legislative branches in a potential court challenge, Betsy? It certainly could. I mean, I think it would bring us to something of a constitutional crisis. If we have two branches of our government that are, are locked in battle over an approach that one of them says violates the their duties under and the separation of power under the state constitution, that will go to the Idaho Supreme Court. And, and we very likely would see litigation on this. Oh my gosh, this legislative session is never gonna end. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I I hope you're wrong, Betsy. I really <laughs> hope you're wrong. You know, I, and I, and I want to touch on a couple of things that Governor Little said in his comments. He says it's unconstitutional. He says it's costly and impractical. He says it hinders the ability of the state to respond quickly, and that's something that was echoed by both Governors Kempthorne and Otter. Um, Kevin, do you think that that's going to change any lawmakers' minds who initially supported this legislation, but might go against the veto override? You know, it's really hard to tell, and it's it's hard to tell not only how does this veto message resonate with legislators, how does this resonate back in in the districts? I mean, do constituents care about this? Do constituents, uh, you know, I mean, Senate has been off basically since Wednesday. So, so senators, many of them have probably been back in their home districts for the past couple of days, and they'll be back for the weekend. Who knows? But, um, you know, to Betsy's point, you know, we're 96 days into the session. Uh, this session is a long way from being done. And, I and we that, haven't even, oh, please, well, Betsy. Governor Kempthorne's remarks in particular were really evocative. He talked about his experience as a governor um, standing on the scene of the disaster, in his case, extensive 
extended fire seasons with the incident commander and the incident commander turning to the governor and saying we need a decision and a governor on the 60th day of a disaster not being able to decide that and having to say sorry hold on I got to go convene the legislature get 105 people in and see what their um, answer is it was I think that that people back home watching can probably pretty easily picture those scenes I think we saw some of those on TV back when Governor Kempthorne was in office and we had extensive forest fires and certainly while the discussion this year has focused so strongly on the COVID-19 pandemic and the controversial measures that were implemented as a result of that pandemic, things that we hadn't seen in 100 years here in Idaho, we actually do have disaster emergencies all the time in Idaho. And most of them are for, most of them are for things like fires and floods. And fires and floods are tangible things to a lot of Idahoans. I mean, it gets you past the debate about is the coronavirus really a pandemic? Is it is really as serious as uh, as it's made out to be? Idahoans have seen forest fires, they've seen range fires, they've seen floods. Yeah, we're talking about these pieces of legislation. Another big piece of controversial legislation that, as of you know, three thirty Friday, while we're having this conversation, hasn't yet been taken up by the governor is that voter initiative bill. You know, I'm I'm thinking of some of the. Uh, negotiating that might be going on behind the scenes. Do you think maybe perhaps if the governor does sign that bill, which Republican lawmakers especially overwhelmingly want, that there's a chance that this might survive a veto override attempt? So the timing is particularly interesting here. The, the anti-initiative bill, Senate Bill 1110, is on the governor's desk right now. The deadline for him to sign or veto it is around 11.30 a.m. tomorrow, a Saturday. And so right as he is threatening the veto of 1136 and 135, 1136 is on his desk, he could veto it right now, 135 is still on the way there, he's gotta act or not act on the initiatives bill. And he could choose to sign it, he could choose to veto it, or he could choose to allow it to become law without his signature. Um, when asked about this in the past, the governor has pointed back to his veto message on even farther reaching anti-initiative uh, legislation two years ago. but. I think any of those three possibilities uh, is within the realm of reality now and certainly could play into the negotiations between the legislative and executive branch. And we haven't even touched on some of the things that are in, an, I, without the governor's actions, holding the legislature back. The fact that the House has killed three major budgets just since coming back on April 6th. Two of those are education related, Kevin. Uh, we haven't seen those come back in the Joint Budget Committee. Any indication that there is some um, substantial progress going on behind the scenes on finding a compromise on these budgets? I think you're talking about two very different rewrites. I think with the, with the K-12, with the teacher's budget, what uh, opponents of that bill were saying, nobody seemed to say that they had a problem with the dollar figure. Nobody seemed to have a problem with giving teachers their pay. The concern is about this social justice issue that has been coming up in seemingly every education debate this year. And what kind of intent language do you put in to address that? And that's going to be a sticky point. I mean, what does it do and how does it read? Higher ed is a whole different thing. I mean, you've got legislators in that committee and you've got legislators on the floor who want to see cuts made in that higher education budget. They don't want a shift of money like we saw with the first budget. So. I think very different negotiating processes, I would imagine, are going on behind the scenes on, on these two bills. And we did see a, a, a piece of that 
um, kind of come out into public this morning when the House Ways and Means Committee met and attempted to introduce a bill um, talking about the discussion of divisive issues in both K-12 and higher ed. It did not get a uh, end up getting introduced. It was pulled back for changes, possibly to also include pre-K grants in it. Um, we don't know what's going to come out of that effort. Uh, but I think that that was designed to smooth the way, possibly, for passage of both of those by um, legislating in this area. Um, you've got the higher education freedom of thought bill that passed the House that I think is probably also embroiled in this whole process of dealing with some of the free speech issues, dealing with some of the social justice issues on campuses as it relates to the higher education budget. So there are a lot of moving parts right now. You know, along those lines, uh, Kevin, you and I have been talking a little bit about how in the past we have seen efforts to not totally defund public education, but at least take more money away from public schools. And it strikes me that a lot of the same players are maybe involved in this social justice um, debate, that the, the conversation is no longer flat out defunding or reducing expenditures for public schools, that this is a new vehicle to talk about how government schools are getting too much money. This is a debate that has sounded familiar for a few decades now. It's about the amount of money that, that schools are getting. It's also about the direction of what's going on in the classrooms. And this is why I think that this is such an important debate going on. I wrote this week that this is the most divisive education debate we've seen in the state since 2012 and the debate over props one, two, and three. And I think this is just as important a debate that's going on here. It's really not just yeah, if you don't change a dollar or if you change $100 in the teacher salary bill, which is most likely what might happen, you still have this really you know, seminal debate about what is going on in the classrooms or what isn't going on in the classrooms. And I tried to get to the bottom of that this week after the, the uh, failure of the teacher salary bill. I went to the Idaho Freedom Foundation and I said, okay, you, you, you have been pushing for this. You, know, you declared victory when this bill was voted down. Can you provide some examples of problems in the schools, social justice or critical race theory that's going on in the schools? Because you heard no specifics on the House floor. Um, the Freedom Foundation came back with an email and said, we, we declined comment. But I didn't ask for comment, I asked for specifics, and, and I didn't get either. <laughs> and I also it, made a request it, to the Freedom Foundation because they supposedly have provided with some legislators with an analysis of how BSU is wasting money on social justice programs, and they refused to provide that to me. And they did publish a 36-page report about all the terrible social justice things going on at BSU. Among those were the identification of what they called indoctrination majors. Some of those so-called indoctrination majors were things like sociology, and social work. Well, every university in the country has those majors and they've been teaching them forever. So if that's what we have to eliminate to get rid of this, this agenda that they're concerned about, we probably couldn't do higher education anymore. And, and, well, and you know, I want to look back quickly. Sorry, Kevin, it, it, it speaks to a, a broader debate that we've heard for a long time about the purpose of higher education in the first place. Is it a place where you learn about the world, where you learn about critical thinking, where you have these difficult conversations, or is it a place where you learn how to do work for a job? You mm -hmm. learn job skills. You learn how to do things you'll need in your career. 
And I do think we are hearing some of that debate from legislators, um, even some legislators who don't buy the Idaho Freedom Foundation's arguments are, are pushing that the main mission of higher ed in Idaho is job training. But in reality, that's the main mission of our technical colleges. I do want to go back to a point that Kevin made earlier. I do think that it's a different debate for K-12 and higher ed. I have had some strong supporters of, of the defeating of that teacher's budget tell me, oh, it's going to come back bigger. It'll be a lot bigger, you see. So we'll see. I mean, maybe they really don't want to cut the funding, although uh, they took a big risk by voting down the biggest portion of the public school budget and the career ladder raises that teachers have been promised by the legislature for years. They are in statute. And the teachers didn't get those raises this year because of the budget holdbacks. And that bill that was killed restored the raises for this year as well as next year's installment. So it really, for teachers, was seen as a slap in the face. And it, it, it could come back to haunt those who supported killing that budget. Yeah, two points I want to make really quickly. I want to piggyback on Betsy's point because it's a really good one. When I go back and think about 2012 and the propositions, where I think that debate pivoted was when people felt that the propositions were a slap on, against teachers. When it became an issue about teachers in your your kid's teacher, the teacher you go to church with, the teacher you see at the grocery store. Then it gets personal, and then people are very, they're very defensive of their of their local teachers. So I think that's one really important point to keep in mind here as this budget plays out. I want to go back to Governor Little on this as well. You know, you, we saw the governor very forcefully come out about the emergency powers on Friday. We've seen him do this earlier in the session. He has been silent on this whole social justice in education firestorms going on in the state house and i tried and i got turned down for, for an interview he has been very quiet on this issue and, and this issue is raging around the state house it really is lots of passionate opinions on all sides of it uh, you know betsy we have about two and a half minutes left i wanted to touch on a story uh that bill spence of the lewiston tribune broke on friday morning and james dawson of boise state public radio expanded on later in the afternoon um accusations against a freshman lawmaker from lewiston Yes, and I understand there are further developments on that story, and Bill Spence will have a follow-up story. Um, I understand that the House Ethics Committee voted unanimously that it did find probable cause um, for a violation there, and that it will all be made public now. And Representative Aaron Von Ellinger from Lewiston has issued a denial. He issued a press release to the Lewiston Tribune. Um, the charges involve um, I guess I would say sexual harassment against a volunteer legislative staffer. It is it is not a good look, and it's it's something we're going to hear more about. Well, and what we what we saw from James Dawson from BSPR was more than sexual harassment. The allegations include a forced, unconsensual, sexual contact. Oh my gosh. I'd, I had not seen the documents yet. So yeah, this is, this is a freshman legislator. Um, since he's been here, he's done some fairly bizarre things. He's the author of the anti-public art bill um, and some other things like that. His, um, Bill Spence's reporting has shown some somewhat odd things about his background, such as the Vaughn in his name. He added um, to his name for security reasons while living in Alabama. Um, I don't think we know a lot about this new freshman legislator, and this is probably not the most pleasant thing for his constituents to find out.
And, and it's important to note that as we're having this conversation, as you mentioned, Representative Von Ellinger has issued a denial. He has hired attorney David Leroy, who is a former, of course, attorney general and lieutenant governor, to represent him and um, the House Ethics Committee um, as you said, is looking into this. So we will keep everybody posted. Kevin, um, we have less than half a minute left. Betsy said that the session's never gonna end. Do you have a prediction? Okay, so Tuesday is day 100 of the Idaho legislature. Now, is it like a basketball game? Will, will we get free tacos because they hit the 100 mark? You know, like-, like You know what? Now that we're fully vaccinated, taco party at my house. Betsy <laughs> Russell of the Idaho Press. Kevin Richard of Idaho Ed News. Thanks so much for joining us and thank you for watching. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.